Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson with you, and we are smack in the middle of December. So privileged to be celebrating Advent with you. Did you even get our Advent devotional? If you haven't, boundless.org slash Advent. It is not too late. You will just have to do like three days of it at a time, but that's okay. What do you have going on heading into the new year? So it's all good. Um, Let me give you a little bit of what is coming up on the show later on for our inbox. We have a listener who's asking, is it wise for a guy to get give a girl a gift on a first date. Okay, I'm going to weigh in on that because you will find out in my response that that did happen to me. And I'll let you know what transpired. Okay. And then for our culture segment, we have Pastor Ken Harmon and Dr. Trent Langhofer here, who have both been on the show before, and they are back to share about how you can help a friend who is struggling with addiction. And so I know many of you have written to us about this before. Many of you have been in the throes of addiction yourself. And so this is going to be helpful and hopeful, part one of our discussion on this. And so you're going to want to stay tuned. Okay, here we are for our round table. And I have brought two friends in, two great pastor friends. Yes, I even have pastor friends, y'all. I know you can't even believe it, but um, to talk with us about how to find a good small group. Okay, this is something that everyone agonizes over because this can get really awkward really quickly. Okay, so who hasn't been like assigned to a small group in their church and all of a sudden you're with someone who's way TMI or there just gets to be all kinds of weirdness or you're in a small group with someone you dated and now you don't know what to do. So it can get tricky. And so uh, we have got Jay Benson and Lee Taylor here. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. Awesome to have you. You are both, okay, so local pastors, and like I said, friends of mine. Um, Jay, you are pastor. You've got to give me, okay, your title, like, is so (laughs) bougie, I can't even get over it. Wow. Um, I just thought you were the guests and groups pastor. Guests and groups, yeah. That is, like, amazing to even call out guests specifically as a pastor who is, like, assigned to that. That's amazing. So kind of enfolding. Uh, an unfolding role yep, in that yep. sense? Guest groups, okay. and then um, it's not in my title, but also Alpha as well, and um, kind of looking at the front door of our church and kind of helping people get plugged in uh, to groups, to our church, to community, that kind of stuff. Very cool. And I know, Lee, you're our discipleship pastor um, at Village 7. That's the church I attend here in Colorado Springs. And I know that I pulled both of you guys in specifically because you are tasked with small groups at your respective churches. So this is kind of like, do you feel like, is it, I mean, I don't know of a church that doesn't feel like, yeah, we need to do small groups. I mean, are there still churches out there that are like, no, we're cool. We got a worship service. (laughs) I think small groups is kind of the thing necessary in our culture, right? Yeah. If there is any churches, I don't know of. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure I know of any of those either. You know, I think people are figuring out Sunday school kind of models in different ways or whether or not to do that still. But small group seems to be one that's, that's sticking around yeah. in most, even different sized churches. Yeah. I, I'd say that's the number one question I get from people who are new to our churches. What's your group situation? What's okay. it look like? Yeah. yeah, good. Because I think that it is, especially in a culture that is increasingly isolated, increasingly digital, 
that craving for human connection and to be known and to be pursuing growth is so important. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to definitely talk about that. But first, give us a little background on yourselves, um, specifically, maybe your own experience with small groups, and then also how you got into a role where you are now responsible for small groups and getting people plugged in. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I grew up uh, pretty much in the church and uh, different denominations over the years. Uh, but uh, one of the reasons that why I got into ministry was was through small group in uh, in youth ministry. And uh, back when I was in junior high, just seeing discipleship really work and be a beautiful thing in my own life. And uh, and so some of those things that were really pivotal at that time of just you know shared experiences, uh, coming you know studying the word together, uh, just enjoying uh, yeah a group of guys that was really close, uh, and that started when I was in junior high through high school. Uh, got involved in campus ministry as well, and so I got to see that in some different contexts inside and outside the church, um, and then got into youth ministry uh, vocationally after college, and so I was do I did that for about six or seven years and. For this, for a lot of those same reasons of what had a massive impact in my life and being able to come around junior high and high school guys on that small group level and obviously the big programs and things like that as well. Um, but just watching that really work, so to speak, <laughs> uh, in my own life and then in the lives of, of, of young guys and then uh, to where I'm at now coming out at, at Village 7, I grew up in Memphis and being out here in Colorado Springs of, you know, finishing school and then being in, in a job where uh, got to help oversee our small group ministry um, has been a really cool thing. And so, you know, we get to very different ages and stages at our church at Village 7, but um, how do we how do we do that in a, in a kind of a loving and winsome way? And so um, and so that's that's been a kind of a cool journey of what God's done in my life. And and it's always kind of been, you know, through different things, different areas uh, where I've been, small group discipleship has been kind of the very core of uh, of what has um, been a passion of mine, mm-hmm. um, even as my role has changed at different points throughout my life. And uh, and so it's been a really cool thing. I get to work with a team that does that now. That's great. Uh, yeah, similar. I mean, I think some of the most... If- uh, impactful moments of my life happened in small groups of people knowing me and me knowing other people. Um, and, uh, how I got into this role, um, I wouldn't say necessarily was seeking this specific position out, but it just kind of made sense with what I was doing with alpha and, um, kind of some rearranging on our staff that, uh, we had someone whose specific role was to, um, yeah, be the person to help people get connected into groups. And, and I, um, was leading a group at the time, was a part of another small group and, um, have always had a heart for, for groups. And so, um, still doing that. I lead two groups, um, throughout the week. Um, and, uh, love it. Love helping people get connected in groups. That's great. So I know that this like changes over time and obviously you should mix it up, but let's do a little like small group 101. So a person, you know, of course we're talking here to young adults who's looking for a small group. What would you recommend are the things that they should consider or even maybe an easy entry kind of thing? So like, 
Should they go for a peer group? Should they go for a mixed generational group? Should they go for a Bible study or a book study or a social group? I know there are so many options and it can be super overwhelming, but what have you found, like for a person, I mean, there are so many in our audience who are new to a city because they took a new job and they know as a Christian that the best way to get plugged in is to go to a great church, find a small group, meet some people and whatever. What do you think that could look like for them? What would be some good ideas? So, so many times we're fielding questions on the front end that's helping vet what those actual things are, you know, so they're coming in, hey, I love an intergenerational group, or I want, you know, and so sometimes you're just receiving with kind of the filters that they already give you. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it kind of, it kind of does help us um, think through what would be a best fit. And over the years, you kind of figure out like, okay, you're asking this, or you're wanting this, I feel like I can help you kind of navigate those waters. If someone's like, Hey, I'm brand new and I'd like a small group. Where should I go? You know, I, I will still will kind of ask a lot of those follow-up questions in general because sometimes even if they don't know it, they they want a book study, they want just a meal group, they want someone further down the road, or they want just their peers. And so a lot of times that does kind of help dictate those different kind of things. But uh I'd say, you know, in general, whatever is going to be something that's going to help them grow and where they feel like they can be consistent. If, if it's not going to be a fit, those things are not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so the, those would become some in, initial intake that would help kind of steer me and how I help people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I encourage people to think about what do you want? And, um, a really common answer is community. I want community. Um, and I think that's kind of our go-to, but there's so much community offered every aspect of life, you know, at, through our kids' schools or through uh, your own school or through your job or through you know, all the extracurricular yeah. activities. There's community Playing everywhere. Playing pickleball. Playing Hello. pickleball. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's tons of community everywhere. And so a lot of times I think when people start off that way, it doesn't last long because – something's got to go, they're going to pick their top three favorite communities. And if the meal group's not in that one, then it's going to go or their home group. Sorry, we call them meal groups. So I'm <laughs> trying not to always refer to them as that. Um, and so I try and encourage people to think intentionally about, do you want to grow? Do you, do you understand what like a small group is intended for? Um, and uh, if we can work from there, I think it helps with De determining, deciphering kind of where you go from there. If you know, okay, a small group is a place where people are going to know me. They're going to encourage me towards Jesus. They're going to challenge me. They're going to um, kind of help me reflect back where is Jesus in my life currently. And we can start from there. Well, a group that looks really similar to you and um, is of your peers can do that and can do it well. But a group that looks a lot different than you can do it even better. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging people, um, if, if people don't know, my, my number one encouragement is always um, join a group that doesn't look like you. Different ages, different ethnicities, different relational status, all that sort of stuff. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. The hardest group you could join will be one like that. But um, it'll also be the most challenging and the most the most growth you uh, you can experience over a period of time. And so, um, I always try to encourage people to join a group that is um, yeah just doesn't look like your peers or your your pickleball group or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think of um, you know no one no one is assuming that 
Yeah, the best way to find a small group is sign up on a list at church, and then they randomly put you into a lottery or something, Mm -hmm. and you just get assigned. I mean, okay, God can work. That's great. But usually, kind of what you guys are doing is kind of curating, you know, helping figure out what people are looking for, what they need, all that kind of thing. I think that's great. Um, Although, you guys, it's a little reminiscent of being an online dating coach. I'm going to be honest (laughs) with you. That's a unique skill set for y'all. But that's fun. So, but that said... Some people are going to be, their fear is, okay, but I'm going to join this group and I can tell you these people, they're probably not going to encourage me in anything. It's going to be super awkward and I'm going to, I'm going to give it three months and if nothing happens, then I need to just bail. So what, what about setting expectations? Like how do people, because there are a lot of young adults, especially single young adults who want to go deeper and want to really make, you know, one of the biggest questions we get here at Boundless is how do I make friends? How do I keep friends? And how do I go deeper in friendship? I mean, that that search for relationship is so real. And I don't think that's just single young adults either. Um, So what would you say? What does it look like to cultivate an authentic small group and kind of be able to make it go the distance as far as you're able to contribute towards that? Yeah, I think High intentionality between, uh, ideally, between the members of the group and the leader uh, or leaders. And so explain um, that. What that yeah, means. I mean, if there's clear and high, like, or um, maybe not high intentionality, but there's an uh, intentionality to the group of our intention is to grow and our intention is to do these things, and and this is how we're going to do it, and that is clear. Then people come knowing what to expect prepared to do that, hopefully. And there's kind of these clear roads of if that's not happening, they can assess, okay, well, why isn't this happening? Um, Let's say it's to, we're going to read a chapter of the Bible, we're going to get together and talk about it, and no one's reading it. Well, there's something missing in this intentionality, right, of the intention is to read and and show up uh, prepared to talk about this. And so, um, I think the higher intentionality, the more uh, deep people will go, the more connected they'll feel, all that sort of stuff. If there's not intentionality and it's just like, hey, we're going to meet, it's a random group of people. Let's just see what happens. Let's see where the discussion goes. I think those are the groups that after about three months or so are like, yeah, just not really feeling connected. And so I think it takes a lot of intentionality and saying, this is what we want to do. And if this is what we want to do, how are we going to do it? And Okay, here's how we're going to And it's do it. almost like what you're saying is speaking to, there's got to be some kind of leadership of the group too. It can't just mm-hmm. be this free-for-all because someone has to set expectations and hold people to them. I know I uh, lead a small group at our church and I tend to, every time we start a new study, kind of communicate the expectation. We're currently doing a Bible study that has homework and it's kind of like, y'all need to do the homework because if you don't, <laughs> you're not going to be contributing to the discussion. And so I'll send out reminders throughout the week. Are you doing your homework, you know, because we all need those promptings sometimes and stuff. But then it is also, they also know in my group that I will pointedly ask questions. And so they have to be prepared. And I'm also going to ask questions that are like personal as well. So it's not just like, let me just read the verse for you where this came out of. But, you know, I'm going to need them to connect it to their own life too. And so once we set that expectation, people show up for it if they really want to grow. That's good. Yeah. 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 I I think the leader sets the tone in a lot of ways. And so there's things that you can and cannot control as a leader, you know, but when I spend time encouraging some of our leaders of the different groups, it's like, okay, this is kind of what 
the group's not going to probably get to where you want it to go if you're not willing to lead out in that same way of the values that you want to see. You know, so as you just talked about, like you, you know, you, 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 intentionality. Well, if the leader's not being intentional, like there's not going to be intentionality in the group. If the leader's not following up on what the assignment is for that week or whatever you're going to read, you can't expect the group. And so the three things that I've probably seen that have been true about a really helpful and effective small group, whether you're dealing with junior high kids, singles, young adults, older, uh, is is a group that has that's that's vulnerable, uh, that's teachable, you know, to one another, but ultimately to the Lord, and then consistent. And uh, when you have those three things, it, it can it, that's really the common denominators of things that I've seen. But it takes work to get to that point. Yeah. I mean. I think that's part of frustrations that I felt over the years, specifically with with young adults at times, is that that consistency piece is not there. They want something to be there that takes consistency, and that's the thing that they're struggling the most with, whether they can articulate that or not. And um, but when you have those things, that's when you have the intimacy. That's when you have the community. That's when you're there for each other, and and obviously when you're growing and being able to receive feedback from the leader or from one another, ultimately like maybe sitting under God's word and having like, I'm going to let this inform the way I'm going about my life. Uh, those things are really important and it does take time and it takes the leader modeling that stuff too. Yeah, that's good. I think, um, you know, I would be remiss with having two dudes here to not talk about <laughs> dudes in small groups, okay? Yep. The guys listening, I mean, I it, this is so funny to me because I can just picture it because these are my small groups. Like, mm-hmm. you gather women, and it's like, who's bringing the colored pencils, who's brewing <laughs> the coffee, and who is making four different kinds of snacks? Because that is every small group that women do and whatever. And then you have guys That's who are yours, like... Jay? Okay. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and maybe there's sometimes crochet involved. I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, it just depends. We do but crochet. <laughs> I think guys are like, uh, can I join the ladies' small group? Because they seem to be organized and they have snacks. So how in the world can you give guys a vision for being in a small group and even investing the time to sit with other guys, especially single guys, when they feel like they're going to go into a small group and it's all going to be like, well, my wife made me come, or are we going to have to talk about (laughs) porn or about how I don't do anything around the house? I mean, it's just like a big downer. So you guys need to give a vision for what can be gained because clearly you're both still in small groups and have benefited from them. So kind of talk them through that. Yeah, I, I... It, it is hard at times, but uh, going back to what you just mentioned of, you know, the leader's got to model that, you know, so if you're, if you're wanting to see something out of a group and if you're getting a guys that are new or they were forced to go there by their wife or, you know, their, their, their friend dragged them to the group, you know, you want to set the tone for what you want to see. And if it's hard for guys to be able to articulate how they feel about something or share a hard struggle uh, I, I've always believed that, you know, I'm not willing, I don't want to be willing to ask somebody to, to do something or to share something that I also not willing to talk about and share my own life and, uh, to a degree. And so I think that that is a big part of, of how you can gel a group, how you can get a group of guys even to feel comfortable and, you know, my wife's a professional counselor, so I, I have to talk about my feelings on a regular basis. And so maybe I'm just a little bit more used to it. And and I think a lot of guys can go there, you know, and, you know, you you have a game on in the background or, you know, you, you change up your environment a little bit that can help. Um, during COVID, I probably had, 
I don't know, maybe a hundred different fire pits that year of guys because they'd be we, one we could be outside we felt comfortable about mm-hmm. that um but you get guys around a fire pit and they would be more willing to talk about things they can look at the fire they don't have to look at your eyes you know mm-hmm. and and share what's going on in their life and that was something that was that was really helpful at that time mm, that's good yeah yeah i mean i don't think i have a uh like, this is the way you do it. I can tell you what I do with a group of guys that um, I do lead a men's group. We've been meeting for a few years now, actually, which is the longest men's group I've ever been a part of. And um, it goes back to what I said earlier. Uh, I was very intentional of like, here's what I want to do. Um, it actually was thinking, I have a hard time sharing what I'm thinking. And sometimes I don't even know what I'm thinking. I'll go throughout my week and then I'll realize later, oh, I was thinking about that. I just didn't realize that. So I told these group of guys, I said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to meet regularly and you're going to bring a discussion topic. We're going to take turns. We're going to rotate bringing a discussion topic. Uh, You need to come prepared with a discussion. You need to start us off and say, this is what we're going to talk about. Um, And you're going to pray before we start and then you're going to start the discussion. So... That way, um, it's not like, hey, I want to talk about this, and they just sit back, and it's like, well, who's who's going? It, they're starting off the discussion. They're sharing why this is something they want to talk about. It's usually because they've been thinking about it throughout the week. Something's going on in their life. Uh, and then that way, it's like um, sometimes it's you know the topic of pornography or whatever, but it's definitely not all the time. We've talked about Sasquatch. We've talked about aliens. We've talked about, um, <laughs> how to have good friendships as men, how to have, how to spend your money wisely, all this stuff. And it's all brought up by them and what was on their mind. But I'm very like intentional with, this is how we're going to do it. This is our time frame. This is how it looks. And uh, we're going to go with it. And I've seen them uh, really crave that. Like, oh, it's like we know what we're doing. It's not this like we show up. We don't know what it's going to look like. There's kind of this nebulous like what's the topic going to be? Who knows? You know, we don't know what the topic's going to be always. But um, is we know how it's going to look. We know that someone's going to come. We know who's coming with a discussion, ready to ready to talk, ready to kick us off. And the discussion's great every time. And I, le- I learned so much from that group. Um Every Tuesday morning. Yeah, um, you got you to set those ground rules. I think that's really important that they know what to expect. Yeah. And, and having the mutual ownership of that. You know, mm-hmm. if it's just the leader doing the same thing every single week, I mean, same thing's good. But when you have other people that are like, hey, you're going to lead this week or you're yeah. going to do that part of it, you know, like that's that's really important. Because some guys, especially if they're newer and or, you know, young, new, like it's hard to say like – they might just sit back and not participate. And that in and of itself might be something that causes them to, you know, not be consistent with that or end up going, leaving to do something different. But when they know, like uh, our our former senior pastor used to say, everybody needs a friend and a job, you know? So even (laughs) to, to, to get that stickiness and even in a small group, Hey, I'm, I'm bringing this or I'm going to, share this week or lead this week. That's important. Yeah, that's good. So it kind of brings me, I mean, just quickly here in the last minute or so we have left, um, you know, we're, we're talking very assumptively that, 
you're going to get into a small group and it's all these healthy people who love Jesus and it's just going to be amazing and you're going to grow exponentially and whatever. Um, But then you have someone in the group who's like super yakky and sharing too much or you have someone who's not a safe person and the next thing you know, something you shared is like in every other small group at your Mm. church and it gets super hurtful. Um, What does it look like to just navigate that kind of space or even the fears around that? And what does that mean? Like if for even determining, is it time to move on from a certain small group, whether it's for unhealthy reasons or healthy reasons, help someone kind of pull the trigger on that. Yeah, I think you got to have some, a pretty clear connection of what is the leadership and, you know, what's the process to go through. If you feel like one, you're on, there's something, you know, sketchy or you feel unsafe, something was shared that shouldn't be shared. You know, what's kind of the leadership and, you know, who do you go to to talk about that? And, and there has to be some trust and reciprocity there. And, and to, to follow that, you know, to go to go to that person, get people further down the road, whatever that is in that church, you know, structure or, you know, leadership um, that they can weigh in and say, hey, can you help me make sense of this? Uh have multiple areas of that, whether that's the church leadership, you got a counselor, you got maybe family that help you kind of know if this is the right time to to move on from something or to stick with this. I mean, there is a sense of like, oh, I don't know if I like that. And, you know, in this age of kind of consumerism, I think sometimes we follow that desire in, in the name of something went wrong or something like that. And uh, it could just be People live in life together, and uh, it's it's hard and it's messy at times. You know, we get that with family. Mm-hmm. Like we'll say, "Oh, well, it's family." So you know, we don't think about that always in the context of small group and church life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to why did you join a small group in the first place, right. and and did you join because you wanted to be challenged and because you wanted people to see and know you and and you know call out uh, areas in your life that are need calling out or, or reflect Jesus in your life, all this, uh, sort of stuff. And is that happening? And now are you like, uh, I'm uncomfortable. I want out, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and that takes prayer and discernment and honest reflection and saying, is this what's going on? And I'm just uncomfortable. Um, if that's what's happening, I would encourage you to keep pressing in, you know? Um, but if it's, uh, there's also tons of reasons why it's a great time to move on from a small group, you know, seasons change, things change, but, um, yeah, I would, uh, really discern it. And also, um, don't make the decision on your own. You know, like um, Lee mentioned, bring other people into the decision. Maybe it's your small group that you're bringing in on the decision. And don't right. just stop going to a small group. You know, mm-hmm. talk uh, talk to the leaders. Give them the honor of, of moving on well. And, and, um, and, yeah, and the difficulties of people who, you know, y- you can have the best of intentions in leading a small group or joining a small group and you don't know who's going to come and what they're going to be like. Um, but, uh, pulling in the leadership of, of whoever's running the small group ministry. I mean, I, I always hate when someone leaves because they're upset by something or they, they leave a small group or they stop leading, whatever it is. And they, they, they never, never told, told me. Yeah. yeah. The whole time <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, I wish three months ago we could have had a conversation because I feel like it could have gone a lot differently. Yeah. And so, yeah, just pull people in if you're noticing that, feeling that. And even again, what you're saying, you know, about expectations, like expecting growth and realizing mm-hmm. that everyone's going to have to grow and there's going to be some growing pains, that whole idea, uh, 
quoting again our our former pastor, um, if you don't have friction with someone at church, you're probably not plugged in right. enough, you know. Yeah. So just expect that to happen. I mean, exactly. as you start talking about life, you know, you're gonna yeah, you're gonna probably bump up against some bruises and have some of yours hit as well. So you guys, thank you so much for weighing in on this. I super appreciate it. What a great conversation and good wisdom and advice from you guys. Thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, folks. Well, here we are for this week's culture segment. And uh, I was just talking to my two guests before we started taping about the somewhat weird nature of the fact that we are going to talk about this topic two weeks running during the Christmas season. But you're going to get why this is so appropriate. And maybe, you know what, if this has been your struggle, or this is a family member or friend that you know, that you love, um, you're going to be like, bring it on. And so today and next week, we are going to talk about addiction. Struggles with addiction, whether this is you, whether this is a friend, I have brought two heavy hitters to the table here today because uh, I'm going to straight up say we've got two doctors, y'all. We have got Dr. Trent Langhofer, who we've had on the show before, oddly enough, talking about premarital counseling and stuff like that, um, also in his wheelhouse. And then our dear friend, uh, Dr. Ken Harmon, who has been on the show as well, talking about the role of church and the importance of church in community. And so, so great to have both of you here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Honored to be with you, Lisa. Thank you. Well, this is really our our privilege. And so both of you guys, kind of your, your pastors, your speakers. You are, I know you're a licensed professional counselor, Trent. Um, Can you run Celebrate Recovery at your church uh, here locally in the Pikes Peak region? A lot going on, but what we're going to start off with is your own stories, because you're not going to be talking third person about this today. You guys are going to be sharing (laughs) why, I mean, we'd we'd like to think you're just pastors who have no problems and who've never walked through anything and who Uh. can just tell everyone how amazing you are and were, but uh, we got some stories here to get into. And so I want to start out, um, again, we are talking this week and next about addiction, and I want to start out with each of you sharing your own story of where you were and where you are today and the road in between. So who wants to start? Varsity first. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Trent, you go ahead. Thanks, Lisa. So really honored to be with you. So thankful that you guys are doing a a segment or two on this really critical topic. And for your listeners, 
you know, the holidays can be a really tough time for yep. people who are struggling with addiction. So I think this is really appropriate. Lisa, like you said, I'm a university professor. I oversee a counseling agency, have some articles published, have a chapter in a book published, do some public speaking, um, have a small private practice, um, happily married, got three wonderful kiddos. And sometimes I feel like I'm God's favorite child. I just feel like I've been shown so much favor and have been blessed so many different ways. Uh, but the man I am today is not the man I have always been. So actually, uh, from today, I have five days until I hit 19 years of freedom from addiction. Amen. And I'll give you a snapshot of my lowest moment. And if we want to get into some more details later, we can. So my lowest moment, this is a true story. I had escaped from an inpatient mental health treatment center on the outskirts of New Orleans, Louisiana. I was living homeless in the French Quarter. I stayed at the uh, homeless shelter for teens and runaways off Rampart Street in the French Quarter called the Covenant House. I was sharing needles with other homeless people, experienced just about everything you can imagine living homeless in the Big Easy and a lot of things that probably most people couldn't imagine. And through a really miraculous turn of events on December 2nd, 2004, um, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and things have not been the same for me ever since. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to want to back up and get a little more um, behind that. But Ken, why don't you go ahead, give us a capsule of your own story as well. Thanks, uh, Lisa. I was born and raised in a city called Ben Harbor, Michigan. It's a predominantly African-American city. It was actually the halfway point between Chicago and Detroit, so it was a drug-run run city. I was raised in the Vineyard Housing Project, which was considered the worst place in the city, the worst place in the worst city. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother was a partier. She partied, partied, partied until she was about 30, and she could no longer party anymore. So she popped out three kids by three different dads, and it was me and my two sisters, and we were back-to-back -back all within nine months of each other. So I was raised in the projects with a mother who lived a life of promiscuity. About seven or eight years old, I was I made it home. I was looking for my mother. I couldn't find her. And I went to knock on a house that I wasn't supposed to knock on. I had been told over and over, don't go to that house. But I was looking for my mother. I'm seven, eight. Um, and I was coerced into the apartment. And that's where I was raped. That event changed everything. Although at the time I didn't know what was changing, I just knew something was wrong with me. Uh, from that point on, I led a life of ridiculous promiscuity. Uh, I was having orgies by the time I was in the seventh and eighth grade. Uh, to this day, I don't know who I lost my virginity to. I was married twice, didn't love them, never been in love, saw no need for love. Um, and I just saw my life as a total mess until um, I walked into a church one day and I, because I didn't know what else to do. And the pastor started talking to me about a call on my life. He started talking to me about Jesus. I had heard that stuff before, but I always thought Christian was just hypocrites. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but he was talking about it in a way that drove me to accept Jesus. And then that really was the start of trying to change this behavior that had mm -hmm. been so normalized for me. Yeah. No, for sure. Wow. Okay, so different paths, different stories, both of you, um, but a turning point as part of both of them. But now how, I feel like there are a lot of people maybe who are in the throes of addiction who look backwards and say, well, does it really matter? Because 
this is still going to be part of my story. This is still, there's not really change. There's not really, it's not like I can just wipe this clean and forget about it and act like none of this happened. What, I mean, clearly God was such a pivotal point in this for both of you. And Trent, maybe I'll start by asking you, um, because you kind of gave us your story, but how in the world do you find God in the French Quarter and just, you know, people are just like, okay, this must be like made up because it's, you couldn't have been looking for him or what was going on. How were you even not high long enough to even know what you were doing? <clears throat> so Lisa, it, when I was in the French Quarter, it was really miserable. The The way that my uh, freedom story played out was eventually I got located and sent back to the treatment center I had escaped mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. I finished treatment there and ended up back in my hometown in Kansas. And for the next three years was just as hardcore of an addict as you could be and survive. So I need to lose some weight. Thanksgiving just happened. I'm about 250 pounds today. At my rock bottom moment in uh, uh, October or November of 2004, I weighed 120 pounds. I uh, thought I had HIV and was just about dead. And um, I overdosed and blacked out. And I come to on my grandparents' front driveway. Uh, they nurse me back to health. And I go to a little church in my hometown um, that next Sunday. And the, the preacher is teaching a message on being a contender or a pretender for Jesus Christ. Hmm. And every word this guy said found like it sounded like he was speaking directly to me, uh, which is why it's so important to invite people to the local church. Yeah. God really works yeah. through local churches yeah. uh, to transform lives. But um, he just said so many people in life are really pretenders, and they're trying to act like they're contenders. And he was teaching from the book of Jude, and it, uh, when he asked at the end of the service for everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and, and for anyone that needed uh, prayer to raise their hands, Lisa, it was like balloons had been attached to my wrist. I felt my hand start to raise and I was shocked. So I look at my hand and then I look at this preacher who's making eye contact with me. And I looked the part, man, mm -hmm. black fingernail polish, eyeliner. I was, I was way out there. And when I made eye contact, he motioned me forward and said, if you need prayer, I'd like you to come to the front so I could pray for you. And I had to make three right-hand turns to get to the front of the auditorium we were sitting in. There wasn't a direct uh, aisle that I could take to reach the front. And so I make three right-hand turns, and I come down the center aisle of this auditorium. I often refer to it as the Isle of Shame, uh -huh. also known as the Isle of Freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and when I passed the threshold of the seats my parents were sitting in, I made eye contact with them. And my mom shouts, this is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And I hit my knees and the guy comes off stage and prays for me. And I surrendered my life to Christ. Then I relapsed about five days later on December 2nd. And God just uh, really moved my heart when I relapsed and I made the commitment never to go back and asked him for the help I would need to follow through with that commitment. Wow. Okay. So Ken, turning to you, hard question for you with your story, because you talked about too, an experience now with church and all of a sudden God, and does God have a different story for me? Why in the world would you give a God the time of day 
who had given you a broken family with little to no protection, even from your own mother, who was a partier, who was raped, who, you know, powerless to shape your own story as a child. What, what was God saying to you? What, and why did you bother to, to listen to what he might have to offer? That's a really great question. The simple truth of it is, is I had tried everything else. Mm. I had tried everything else. Mm. I tried the military. I was, I've lived in this state of continuous loneliness. Mm. I've always mm. felt lonely. I've always tried to medicate my loneliness with, with women and situations, and I could never overcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried the military. I love the camaraderie of the military. I was gun ho when I was in the military, and it, but it wasn't feeling the loneliness, which was funny because from the outside, people thought I I had it going on. They thought, man, this guy's promotion, he's in positions, but I was I was always battling with the loneliness. And then I get out of the military, and I'm still continuing to do the same thing I've always done. And so for me, walking into that church, I can really tell you right now, I don't know why I walked in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was driving by it. The lights were on. So I pulled up in the parking lot. I went in it. And when I went in, what was strange for me was I've always felt like Christians were just hypocrites. Um, but the guy was preaching on calling and purpose. They were actually in a series, The Purpose Driven Life at the time. And I had never, I've never heard of life, living life for purpose. I live life for the next pleasure, for the next party, um, even though that, that pleasure only lasted a, a, a day or two. And I never heard of living life for purpose, that God has a purpose for you. And I think that's the part that was missing for me. I needed to know why I'm here and why I'm doing what I'm doing, and it was purpose actually that drove me out of passion, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. Okay, so let's just take kind of where you guys are there, because I mean, we know the the power of the gospel, the power yes. of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is not just some like you read a book and were able to put together a right. bunch of steps right. for what to do. There had to be transformative change here. But that said, you don't just go from a life of promiscuity, addictive behaviors, drug dependence, whatever, to, well, you know what, now uh, a day has passed, so now I'm going to start, I'm going to become a therapist, or I'm going to get a P, you know, a doctorate in pastoral counseling, or whatever. No one is going to believe that. <laughs> right. no, so somehow, there <laughs> no. has to be a story here mm-hmm. of God walking with you Amen. in community, of what it looked like. I mean, I how, you know, let's just be honest here, how you guys are married with families, and whatever. And okay. So here we Gainfully employed. Um, Okay, so let's let's talk about that. What did it look like for you to have to look at a life ahead of you, knowing that if you're not going to turn back, there have got to be some support structures. Something here has got to happen where you are going to turn away from where you were, because you can't just be like, "Hi, I'm Ken. I'm a pastor, and I'm going to still keep partying." Okay, so somehow. (laughs) You're making a new decision to do something different. Mm -hmm. What? How did that even unfold for you? How did you get that support around you? So for me, it was um, so I accepted uh, Jesus in December 2002, and in March 2003. So three months later, the pastor calls me in his office, and we're talking. He says, 
hey, I have a program here called Minister's Training. And it's to prepare you for being a pastor. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I, I was only saved for three months. I didn't even know anything. I, I was still learning what the Bible was, the gospel was. Um, in fact, just a few weeks before that, we were in a um, uh, Bible study, and, they, and the pastor said, turn to the book of John. I literally leaned over to somebody, and I said, uh, I didn't bring that book. <laughs> I was like, all I brought was the Bible, because yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anything. So to be in his office three months later to be talking about pastoring and ministering, I it was peculiar to me. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know anything about ministry. And I was like, so we talked, and I said, okay, uh, great. And then three months later, um, he called me in his office. He said, hey, I talked to you about pastor's training. Um, what's going on? And I said, uh, nothing. He said, have you thought about it? I said, yeah. He said, what do you think? I said, I don't know, because I don't know what it means. He said, okay, great. You're going to start this Sunday. And he called the senior deacon in. He said, get him the, the pastor's pack. Get him the minister's pack. You're going to be here this Sunday and blah, 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 blah. And um, so I remember joking with some friends about it uh, because two and a half years later, I was licensed as a pastor. Wow. And it was so I invited all my old friends from my old hometown. They were there. They knew my dirt. They knew how bad I was. They knew my violence. Um and uh, so I got licensed and stood on stage. And I'm taking pictures with the pastoral team and my license. And one of my friends who wasn't saved, he literally yelled out. He said, if Batman's a minister, it must be a God. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. But that was the reality for me. And what the pastor knew that I didn't know was that I needed structure. Mm -hmm. I was still very much a soldier. And putting me in a structural uh, is what really uh, compelled me to then, I felt like almost obligated that somebody believed in me more than I believed in myself. Mm -hmm. So I felt obligated to uh, pursue this passion and not, more, it really wasn't about disappointing Jesus. It was, I didn't want to disappoint this man who believed in me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lisa, yeah, I would say something similar, Ken. It's interesting how, how uh, alike each of our journeys are. So I surrendered to Christ fully after a relapse December 2nd of 2004. And for the next six months, the only thing I could think is I'm not going to get high if I am inside a church. And I had done every kind of, I've been in treatment eight different times. So if you can imagine a treatment style, I've been subjected to it. Um, and while all of that was helpful for me, and I'm a counselor, so obviously I value mental health counseling, uh, what really changed my heart and Ken's heart, and Lisa, for your audience, we really were two impossible cases. I mean, I was definitely the guy that people knew was the least likely to find recovery. And so I really did think to myself, if I can just get in church as often as possible, that's got to be the safest place for me to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the first things I did. The second thing that happened is I developed some friendships with some people inside the church. And we can talk about this later, but the opposite of addiction is actually not sobriety, according to the research today. The opposite of addiction is actually connection. Mm. And there are a few interesting studies I could reference, but Christians have the market cornered on connection. Mm -hmm. Love is the core feature of connection. It's the uh, central attribute of our God, First John 4, 8. It covers a multitude of sins, First Peter 4, 8. It's the most distinguishable feature of a disciple, John 13, 13. Um, 
of the eternal constructs of our faith, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love. And thankfully, I found a local church where people really loved an unlovable, broken, clueless, hurting kid and welcomed him into the fold. And and about six months uh, after I got clean, I met my bride, the woman of my dreams, granddaughter of the pastor of the church. <laughs> Obviously, she's got some radar detector deficiencies that she couldn't <laughs> see how dangerous of a decision I was. Um, but we started seeing each other. And about six months later, I started attending a Bible college. And I thought to myself, um, if the way to stay sober is to be in a church, Maybe I ought to try working in a church uh, to enhance the the length of time each week I would get to spend in a church mm-hmm. and decided I was going to try to learn as much about uh, God, God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit and God's Word as I possibly could in hopes of becoming the best Trent that I could be mm-hmm. and hopefully finding a way to uh, land a job within a church to get inside those doors as often as I could. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask a, a question here that's kind of a two-parter, but both parts have to do with, I think, the the crux of the issue being trust and being willing to mm. say, I'm going to have to trust something and someone bigger than what I've been leaning on here. Okay, so the first aspect of that is just I want to address the church issue, because there are people here who are like, this is probably me. Uh, this is probably, and, and th- there may be people listening. I mean, this is boundless. There are people here who love Jesus mm-hmm. who are still in the throes of no addiction. Question. That's right. Okay, That's right. so, but they're like, I don't know if my church has the chops for this or to, mm-hmm. to talk to me or to deal with me, or will they accept me? If I even share a glimmer of what I'm going through, what if I'm rejected? What if they mm-hmm. don't have the tools to get me where I need to be? So give folks a little encouragement or a little insight as to what it looks like to lean into community, to be willing to be vulnerable, and to go after it and say, is this an okay place? Finding a place where you can start going after growth. What is that? What does that look like? So one of the things, Lisa, that I'm, I'm acutely aware of is this. Uh, we understand it in the corporate world. We don't understand it in the church, I think. Uh, in the corporate world, you have variations of everything. You have you can get 20 different type of hamburgers. Mm-hmm. You can get 20 different type of chicken sandwiches. We are, I think sometimes we presuppose that our church is the be-all, end-all for every single person that comes through our door. And I don't think Jesus designed it that way. I think each church has a specialty. Um, generally, most pastors have a passion. And so that passion then permeates through the rest of the church, through the congregation. Uh, as one pastor said, if it's at the head, it's the anointing's in the tail. So each church has a different focus. And if you're struggling with something, first go to your church and ask. You, if you're not vulnerable, you'll never be healed. So, and, and Dr. Trent can talk on this as well. But vulnerability is just the start, saying, I have this, I need help in this, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And if your church doesn't have it, then ask your church, can they help you find it? And here's why I say that, because pastors know pastors, and pastors know what that church over there is cooking. They got they have a great hamburger, and you, you're in need of some hamburger. Go over to that church, or this church over here does some great chicken salad, and you, you're in need of chicken salad. Go over to that church. So I think when the church looks at itself as a community, not just as an individual church, but as a network of systems, then, I, I, then we can all help each other. For instance, I had an individual 
attend Celebrate Recovery last night who was predominantly Spanish speaking. And he stayed and I was happy and I talked with him. He and uh, as soon as we got done talking, I immediately got on the phone and called another Celebrate Recovery that I know that uh, has a uh, Hispanic host that does uh, Celebrate Recovery in, in Spanish. So I immediately reached out to them for him because that's what a network of uh, churches should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Mm-hmm. And it actually um, makes me realize as you're saying this that it's so easy for us to say, okay, Here's where, you know, let's let's put in a pen or somewhere all of the addicts, all the people who are really messes, mm. and then all the really good Christians, you know, we're just going to go do church and do our own thing and whatever. Okay, none of us are good Christians. <laughs> I was no. going to say, Lisa, I'd yes. like to meet that yeah, group no, of good exactly. Christians yeah. exactly. when you find so them. <laughs> that's such a great opportunity, I think, for people. Again, the minute someone's vulnerable, the minute mm. someone steps up and says, I need help, all of a sudden it gives license to everyone else to say, hey, me too. Absolutely. And here's what I'm struggling with and here's my and I may not be passed out somewhere on a street corner I may not be you know ha- not know you know how many sexual partners I've had or whatever but I've got stuff and mm-hmm. I think it's so encouraging to see that okay so that said Trent the last couple minutes maybe you can answer this one the other angle of trust here I want to address is just the person who's like I don't know if I can let go to what I've got going on. I don't know that there's, I don't even know who I would be apart from my addiction, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, I can't, I can't let go of booze. That's mm. what makes me interesting. Mm. That's what makes me the fun person at the party. I can't let go of sex. I mean, I'm single. I can't find someone to marry. So I just need this. This is, this is who I am. Talk to that person. A couple of things I would say about that. The first is some people that are listening to this episode might not be certain that they're struggling with a substance mm-hmm. abuse or sure. behavioral problem. One of the ways we kind of colloquially encourage people to self-assess is to, to gauge whether or not they've ever asked themselves, am I struggling with this? And the, the truth is, if you've asked yourself that question, am I struggling with, you fill in the blank, sex, gambling, alcohol, uh, other substances, then the answer is probably yes, you, you do have a problem. Are you a full-blown addict? That's kind of subjective. But if you've asked the the question, my suggestion is you should seek help. Mm -hmm. So the second thing that I'd like to say is my, my, you know, theoretical orientation is that substance abuse and other behavioral issues are often the compulsive seeking of pain relief. And that's the real conundrum people find themselves in is like you're saying, if I'm shy and alcohol feels like it's a little bit of a jolt of liquid courage, who am I going to be without it? Well, because I've self-assessed my own self as shy, I cope with that shyness with the substance. And so the, the difficulty in some people breaking free from a substance or behavioral issue is that not only do I not have the imagined benefits that that thing provides, I also then have to confront the things about myself that I've been running from. But I would like to suggest that there is no greater satisfaction in life or no greater sense of purpose and meaning 
than, than really healing the hurt that you've endured and finding ways to strengthen features of your personality or disposition that you'd like to strengthen. And there are so many well-documented evidence-based approaches that can be integrated into a change journey like that. And the Bible teaches very comprehensively on the things we need to do in life to heal and grow and change. And I want that to fill your audience with hope. Um, I also do think, and, and Ken referenced this a little bit earlier, John 8.32 says the truth will set you free. And you cannot be fully loved until you are fully known. And in true love, there really is freedom. Uh, true love would be the variety we would consider unconditional love. And to feel loved when I feel like somebody knows everything I've done, every character defect I have, every shortcoming of mine and every mistake I've made, and they don't leave me. That's where true freedom is found. And the first place we are designed to seek that kind of unconditional love is with God, the father through Christ, the son. Mm -hmm. And so coming to him with our hurts, habits, and hangups and really being candid and laying those before him and confessing and repenting. That's the first step in a healing transformational journey. The second is to find a group of people that I can trust, that I can share that with. And as I share who I really am and I become fully known, I find myself fully loved. And that is the purpose for which we've all been created. I want to encourage your listeners to really deeply consider that. And I can assure them that the risk I took at being fully known was the best risk I've ever taken in my life. I feel fully loved by lots of different people. And that, as it turns out, is what I had been looking for all along. Hmm. Okay, well, we have got to continue the conversation. We're going to take this to next week because we haven't even touched what it looks like to love someone and want to be there for someone and uh, and help them along this journey. And so, and again, uh, pulling into the power of community. So are you guys willing to come back for that and continue the conversation? Absolutely. Don't okay. threaten me with a good time. Well, let, <laughs> so let's do it. In the meantime, I want to make you all aware of the fact that we have got, um, some of you may have heard of the book, Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future by Gregory Jantz. We want to make a copy of this book available to you this week. This might be something that you just are curious about, or maybe you're like, I don't know. I need maybe I just need to start somewhere. Okay, you go to boundless.org, search for 828. That's this week's episode. You're going to see the book cover there. You give a gift to Boundless for any amount. This is what you can afford. This is not what the book is worth. This is not whatever. We want to send a copy of this book to you as our gift to you, just as a thank you for that. So make that happen. Get this journey started. Get some information under your belt, and we're going to go from there. Also, you know this if you listen to the show. We have available here at boundless.org slash counseling the opportunity to have a free consultation with one of our licensed professional counselors here at Focus on the Family and Boundless to get you an initial consult, a listening ear, some maybe some advice, maybe a resource, um, but certainly a, a referral even to someone in your own local area who can start and or continue this journey with you. And so we want to make sure that you know about that. You go to boundless.org slash counseling, or you can call us here at Focus on the Family, 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family, and you can kind of start on this journey today, like literally today. So make that happen. All right. We're going to come back next week for this conversation. So I hope that you will come back with us. Yeah, 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 yeah.
substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. But I understand that you cannot comprehend how I will put faith in something I can't see. But think about it, you breathe in, you breathe out. That's air, it's no doubt. In and out in your mouth, you can't see it. I trust what he say, he's not in the grave. Rose on the third day, best believe it. It might take some time for you to change your mind. You might be on your deathbed, might be on your last day. Yeah. And you ask the question, how did I get here? Where am I going when my heart stops? But you should figure that out way before then. Cause time is your enemy and death is his friend. And you can live your best life right here, right now. Fall into the arms of your father and he'll show you how. Well, folks, here we are finishing out the show uh, for this week, and we are opening up our inbox, and I get to answer this week's question. And so uh, it's a little bit apropos, actually, in the Christmas season. So one of our listeners wants to know, what are your thoughts on a guy giving a girl a gift on the first date? Could she interpret it as a sign of his seriousness to pursuing a relationship with her, even while he may be using the date to gauge whether he wants to go further in the relationship or not? If gift giving is a good idea, what are some good options for gifts besides flowers and chocolate? So, okay, well, hey, thanks so much for asking this question. This is a good one because I know guys, especially who are mature and intentional, want to put their best foot forward. And so kudos to you for asking this. Um, but I am going to answer it first by saying that this is a risky move that is hard to do well. So I'm just going to be honest with you. Now, a lot of this depends on how, what your footing is with this girl to begin with. So what, you know, do you know her? Do you have a history together? I mean, are you friends already? Uh, is this a first date? Is this someone you met online? So that's going to make a lot of difference in your decision here. And so um, so I think that's something definitely to, to keep in mind. But if you don't know each other well, this can be super tricky. And case in point, I once had a guy on a first date give me basically a curated playlist and while I thought that was very sweet and very nice of him, I was kind of like, uh, you don't even know me. So and it, he claimed that they were all these songs that like applied to different areas of my life and uh, my personality. So I was kind of like too much too soon. Okay, so you can see where sometimes making presupposed judgments can get you into trouble on the front end of something. And so I just want you to be careful with that. So the other reason that it can be a little tricky is it puts her in an awkward position because she's not necessarily going to show up with something with which to reciprocate. And that could make her feel awkward or feel like she's not, um, you know, on equal footing or something like that. So it just kind of puts her in a position of saying an awkward thank you and maybe feeling like, okay. Now, if you've watched any of those old movies, like from the 30s or 40s, and the guy shows up with flowers, um, I know Pepe Le Pew always did too in the old cartoons. Um, you know, the, you're seeing that there's a precedent for this. But let me just give you a couple ideas. I would say, you want to keep this thing as casual as you can on the front end. And so a gift, like I said, is going to be a risky proposition. That said, as you are on a date, here's where I think that, you know, and again, you have to use kind of wisdom and common sense here. Uh, a couple ways that this could go well is say, for example, something happens during the date where maybe a memento can be purchased and or 
given or, or something like that. So, you know, your date's at an amusement park and you play the carnival games and win a bear. Okay, that makes sense. And it's something you can hand over and be like, whatever. Now, caveat there, don't follow up with her two weeks later and say, you know, did you put the bear in a prominent spot? <laughs> she may have. She also may have thrown it in the trash. So again, you have to be realistic on that. Um, but that's a great example of something that's just worked naturally into the situation. Or you guys tour a farmer's market together and you grab her some flowers as part of that. That is super great as well. So there are, there are ways to make this happen um, where, it, where it can be uh, done well. Another great example, I would say, is if you, if you have some history, if you know this person, or maybe you've had a few conversations leading up to your first date, there are ways that you naturally could bring something. So f- say, for example, you have talked previously, and you show up and you say, oh, well, here's that book that I was talking about in our last conversation that you seem to indicate so much interest in. It would be fun, maybe, if you'd be interested, maybe we could read the book together and talk about it or something like that. So again, if it if it happens naturally, that is perfect. If it doesn't happen naturally, I would say maybe just don't even give it a go. That said, uh, your intentions are so good and you want to maybe concentrate on putting your effort into getting to know her, asking her great questions and being all about her and someone who is intentional in making her feel safe and comfortable on your first date. And I think that will be the best gift that you ultimately can give her. So hopefully that'll help you on the front end. All right, folks. Well, that is it uh, for this week's show. Thanks so much for this question. Thanks for listening even to the previous segments in the show. We hope you enjoyed them. And we will plan on seeing you around next week. In the meantime, you can hop over to Apple Podcasts um, or Spotify, really, at this point and give us a review, a like or a follow. Uh, We love it when you're sharing about the show and especially letting other folks know that you're listening to. That helps us out. So please do that. And I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org from Focus on the Family. Hey, everybody. Here the latest episode of my podcast, Refocus with Jim Daly. Dr. John Lennox talks about how we need to show both love and truth to others. Love and truth they find difficult to put together because love without truth becomes sloppy sentiment and truth without love becomes hard and can be vicious. Dr. Lennox will help you overcome barriers when sharing your faith on the next Refocus with Jim Daly.